From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Good afternoon, Scott Schantz filling in for Jill Bennett all week. Uh, Thanks so much for being here, for listening. Uh, Great show coming up today. We're going to talk about this liberal cabinet retreat that's happening in Charlottetown this week. I was just talking about this with Mike Smith. I'm really interested in this because housing is the big talk across the country. It feels like this nonstop issue that just keeps getting progressively worse. We keep asking ourselves, how how much worse can this get? And it just seems like we keep kicking the can down the road to the point that people are absolutely exhausted moving away. And uh, the liberals, the B, uh, excuse me, the federal liberals are apparently making this the top priority of this cabinet retreat. And I am extremely interested in what, if anything, they can do to fix housing in our country. So we're going to get to that coming up later on this hour. But first, we're going to talk about this explosion in Prince George. Happened earlier this morning morning. An abandoned building on the corner of 4th Ave and Dominion Street in downtown. The reports say it was absolutely leveled. So far, three people have been taken to hospital. One of them is seriously injured. The police say that apparently there could have been someone inside. It's totally possible. They don't know for sure. They don't know the cause of this, but uh, still a lot going on and a lot unfolding there in downtown Prince George. And uh, we're going to go to Prince George now with my guest, uh, Francis Gook, who apparently you heard this explosion this morning. Can you tell us what that was like? Yeah, um, my sister and I were sitting here at the table, and a huge bang, and it felt like the house shook. Um, yeah, it was it was very scary. So, yeah, the first thing we did the first thing we did was go to Facebook, see okay. if anybody knew what it was. And, and was there any information there? Did you find anything out that way? It, well, at first it was just exploding. With everybody was like, "What was that? What was that?" And from all points of the city, they were. Um, saying that they had heard it, and then and then after that there were started to be pictures and and it looked so bad. Yeah, I mean we're seeing some video start to emerge and and, and photos and those type of things are starting to show up on Twitter and it literally looks like a building that was there is just gone. Yeah, yeah. So I was so so sad to hear that people were injured. That's. Yeah, that's so bad. Now, are you familiar with this building, with this abandoned building that was downtown? Do people sort of know that it was there and it was abandoned? And um, what what has been in that place and how long has it been abandoned for? Do you know any of that information? I just know that originally it was the Greyhound okay. bus depot and then it became uh, a Greek restaurant. Okay. And then after that, it became abandoned. And have you heard any sort of, I mean, the police are not saying anything, but I think uh-huh. for a lot of people, the immediate speculation is, could this have been a drug lab? Because we know that oftentimes those, those co- that causes explosions, people having drug labs in abandoned buildings. Now, mm-hmm. just again, to reiterate, we don't know for sure, but what, is there any sort of rumor? Are people speculating on that? Is this a place that where, you know, homeless people or drug addicts have been known to, to be? Um, I haven't heard that yet, but there are a lot of homeless, uh, and I've seen open drug use in that exact area. So that wouldn't surprise me, or, you know, maybe they were, maybe they were living there. Uh, maybe they had a propane fire. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, and a big explosion like that, wh- like, what do you think when you sort of hear and you kind of feel that, your windows 
rattle. Yeah. Like, was it? Is it scary? I mean, obviously you want to get more information, but just in that moment, that first thought that goes through your head. Tell me what that's like. It was totally scary. Like, because I hadn't heard anything that loud except for the earthquake we had a few years ago. Um, yeah. And I, so I knew it wasn't like a bear banger or, right. you know, it was, it was something major. Yeah. And some of the reports are saying that the entire city could have heard it. It was that loud. Yes. Yes. Well, it's five kilometers from where I live. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And you could yeah. hear it and feel it. Oh, yeah. And we went outside. And there were sirens almost immediately. We went outside and we could see the smoke. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what is the, the general sort of atmosphere in Prince George right now? Is everyone kind of talking about this, kind of avoiding the area? Um, what's, what are people kind of doing and, and how are they yeah. progressing with their day? Yeah. Well, I, I, I think that most people are getting their information on social media. And so lots of speculation, you know, lots of people wondering, you know, how did this happen? Um, and I know they had the, the downtown blocked off and they were asking people not to go down there. So, you know, for, for, for me, we, we were very concerned. Yeah, absolutely. I can, I can imagine so. And, and to your point, your earlier point, it's always terrible when you hear things like this and you hear that, you know, people are injured. So again, three people were taken to the hospital, one reported to be in serious condition, but again, the RCMP saying that, of course, it's absolutely possible Mm -hmm. that, uh, that people, that there could have been someone in there. They just haven't been able to get in and check because up till now it's been kind of putting out fires and kind of just making sure that that area is, is safe and there's no more concern for people. But they're saying expect, you know, road closures in that part of downtown to be closed for a while. Right, right. Yeah, my son is a bus driver, and that's what he was saying because his shift started just after that. And he was saying that they were not allowing anybody in. Wow. It's really fantastic. Uh, fantastic in a bad way. Like makes you go, wow, this is huge. Like, um, how things like this happen and how it sort of gives pause and kind of just changes the whole, the whole day and the whole atmosphere right. of a town yeah. like Prince George. Uh, well, very glad that you're okay, Francis. Yeah. Thank you so much for, you know, giving us some information and, uh, we hope to find out more soon mm-hmm. and, um, you know, stay safe, uh, yeah. up in Prince George. Thanks for your time. Okay, thank you very much. Welcome back. Thanks so much for being here. My name is Scott Schantz, filling in for Jill Bennett. And we turn now to the Federal Liberal Party. They're having their uh, three-day party retreat happening this week in Charlottetown, where everybody gets together, Justin Trudeau and his entire cabinet, and uh, basically break down what they need to do and what they need to focus on. And the word is that the big things or big thing that's going to be focused on and talked about, obviously wildfires, huge thing, top of mind for everyone, but housing. Housing has been an issue uh, in our country and specifically here in our province and our city for as long as anyone can remember. There's talks of how high can it go? It's got, there's a bubble. Is it going to burst? Rent has gone up. It's just housing is a, a thing that everybody here talks about, loves to talk about. And 
no one is going to deny that it's absolutely out of control. Uh, I was speaking earlier with Mike Smith. He mentioned how Justin Trudeau had this moment where he sort of said, well, housing's not exactly a federal responsibility. And uh, a lot of people have brought that up, sort of saying, well, whose responsibility is it? You know, guys kind of running the country. Um, I find myself very taken with this because I'm very interested in federal politics, who's leading and running our country. And I'm also really interested in the housing market because I live here and we all need a place to live. Everyone here needs a place to live so that we can work and further the economy and keep this amazing space as awesome as it is. So what are they going to do to fix it? Can they fix it? So I'd like to join and welcome my guest, uh, Susan Smith. She is a liberal strategist and co-founder of Blue Sky Strategy Group. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for being here, Susan. I really appreciate your time this Thanks morning. Thank you very much, Scott. It's always exciting to even get to talk to people in Vancouver. Oh, it's yeah. It's great as being able to visit and be there in person, but I'm delighted to be able to talk to everybody today and to you. Well, Thanks. great. Th- we, welcome. It's a, it's great to have you. What do you expect from this uh, cabinet retreat in Charlottetown? Well, I expect a couple things. Uh, you've nailed it. Definitely housing and affordability will be a conversation behind closed doors. I think the government will be, the cabinet will be looking at how best do they leverage the levers that they have. I mean, you, in your opening there, you talked about whose responsibility is it. Well, the municipalities do the zoning and grant the permits. The, the provinces have the infrastructure. Um, it, it, you know, the pro- municipalities are creatures of the province, and the feds, the provinces, and the municipalities all work together on infrastructure. So the federal government be, will be looking at the levers that it has to help incent the provinces and the municipalities so that instead of you know dancing in oper- opposite directions, they're all dancing in the same conga line trying to get the houses built. That's one of the things they'll be doing. The other thing I think they'll be doing is they'll be talking strategy. Um, you know, the, I think uh, Pierre Polyev and his crew have been trying to pin things on the Liberal government, saying Canada's broken. And I think that the government will be, will be out... Uh, the, ministers will be out thinking about how best to demonstrate to Canadians that it's actually been working when it comes to childcare in the sense that families have money back in their pockets because of $10 a day daycare, that dental care has helped people not have to pay their children's dental bills because they, because the dental care program is in place, those kinds of things. So there are definitely bread and butter issues for Canadians that the, that the cabinet will be exceptionally, um, preoccupied with, and you said it to wildfires and the terrible situation that um, your your colleagues in BC, your friends and families in BC have been suffering through. Yeah, it's certainly going to be a, a busy three days for them, no doubt about that. Um, and I like your point that, you know, housing, it's sort of multifaceted. There's no one reason, no magic bullet that's going to fix it. No, like, you know, hey, if Pierre Polyev got elected, it's not like he's just going to be able to snap his fingers and fix the housing. It's, it's very complex issue. I think that people were just a little bit like to hear our prime minister sort of say, well, it's not exactly an issue that the federal <laughs> party has, you know, a huge hand in. It's, you know, I think we're all taken a little bit, uh, a little bit well, back by that. Well, you know what, Scott, it's funny, you know, all of us have had to take civics classes or something like that in school. And we all, and we're all, anybody who follows the news knows what it's like when the provinces step into the jurisdiction, or sorry, the feds step into the jurisdiction of the provinces. We know, no, we all know that Danielle Smith in Alberta goes bananas. You got it. Yep. Tell her something. That in Quebec, Francois Legault goes bananas. Scott Moe in, in Saskatchewan. So whenever the federal government 
treads near the line of provincial jurisdiction, many, not all premiers, go nuts over it. So the feds have to look at what can they do? Could they take the HST off new rental bills? Could they include when the feds, pros, and the municipalities get together and they look at infrastructure uh, funding flowing, can the feds put um, a contingency that, that, you know, you have to find a way to get these things built. I also think there's a, a role for people in the media. You know, the Canada Real Estate Board puts out housing start numbers all the time. I mean, I think they'd be great if every city and municipality, you know, the media outlets in those places put up how many happened and got built in our community. Because we all know the feds don't issue the construction yep. permits for the cities. It's the cities that do that. So like I said, they all have to figure out a way to dance together. Yeah, absolutely. And just while you're at it, I read this morning that starts in, in British Columbia are up 50% from Great. this time last year. So, you know, you, you're absolutely right. We need to balance the good with the bad. And the term getting everybody dancing together is a really great point. Now, I'd love to ask you about uh, Pierre Poliev and the <laughs> conservatives, because mm. I I acknowledge absolutely what, what you're talking about, that he is very quick, at least on social media and in my perception, to just point fingers and lay blame. And I have tried to, you know, as much as I can interact and ask that conversation of like, okay, so what, what do you propose? What are we going to do different here? But I definitely think that there's a little bit of um, like uh, pot stirring just by pointing fingers and constantly doing that. But are, are you surprised by the, uh, maybe maybe the groundswell or the amount of momentum, at least according to polls, that the Conservatives have picked up this summer? It, what what surprises me is, I, or I guess, or the cynic in me doesn't surprise me, is the lack of truth or lack of adherence to the truth that Mr. Polyev has deployed in social media and his you know purported news conferences. Yesterday he stood at a microphone and unleashed the biggest bunch of hogwash I've actually heard, and he has no concern for the truth. And it doesn't, I think lots of leaders put things out and they say things that they want people to hear and understand, but they have to at least walk beside the truth or have their arm around the truth. And I think Mr. Polyev's, um, you know, taking excessive, maybe Republican-like liberties with some of that, you're right, he's pounced on this in social media, and I actually think the liberals have done a poor job of punching back. Adam, they have let him have too much airtime uh, without response on the social media side. So he for sure has gotten some traction with people. I don't know if it's long-term traction. Um, the likability factor, I think, is really difficult. He's still having trouble with women. We are a long way away from an election. Mm-hmm. And as what you pointed out, it comes to a point where people are, are fine. You know, it's quit complaining. Tell us what you're going to do about it. And he's going to have to, I think, come to the table very quickly from a substantive perspective. It's easy to be a bit grumpy with a government who's been in place for eight years. But before you change, you know, before you get yourself a new car, you have to look at whether the old one actually works or not, or the new one works or not, or the one you want to swap it out with works or not. And so that's, I think we're a ways away, Polyev. The Liberals need to slap back. I think Canadians... Uh, and I would say that to all of my friends and, you know, your, your truth detector hat on needs to be, you know, super activated, your truth detector hat, because what is being said in some cases from some of these politicians is nowhere near 
the truth. And I think Mr. Polyev leads the pack on that. So I think it's going to be kind of an ugly year as we lead into an election. Um, and uh, I hope I'd like I wish I didn't think it was going to be the case. So um, how that fares out in the polls, we'll see where people sort of get tired of listening to a rant as opposed to a constructive thing, because I don't think people believe the country is broken. And that's Mr. Polyev's narrative. I think people think Canada works. Yes. And they just need to trust that their leaders will help it continue to work. No question. I'm definitely with you there. I think the Canadians are a lot more united uh, than than we are led to believe. And I, I certainly think that we need to hold both parties to account um, with the things that they say, both the Liberals and the Conservatives and the NDP and the Greens, absolutely. And, you know, and and that is that is what we're hoping hoping to do here. So yeah, it is going to be an interesting uh, next eighteen months, um, and I hope that we get a chance to check in again because I appreciate <laughs> your insight, Susan Smith. She's a liberal strategist and the co-founder of Blue Sky Strategy Group. Thank you so much for your time this morning. We appreciate Thanks it. Thanks very much, Scott. Thank uh, you. Welcome back. I'm Scott Schantz filling in for Jill Bennett this week. And my guest now, Colleen Hardwick. She's a former mayoral candidate and former member of the Development Permit Board Advisory Panel at City Hall. And we're speaking because I wanna I want some help understanding. There's a social housing project happening in Kitsilano. It's at Arbutus and 7th and 8th, and it's been approved despite opposition. Uh, Colleen, can you explain both sides of this to me and sort of give us an an understanding of uh, what the idea here is and what the controversy is around it? Sure. Hi, Scott. Um, One thing you forgot in in my description was that I did spend the last four years on city council in Vancouver, and I did, in fact, vote against uh, this uh, particular uh, application at that time. And, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons. But I think if you were to to break it down in a nutshell, uh, there's three problems with it. One is the congregate concept, which is we're going to create a bunch of single occupancy units, 129 of them in a 13 story high rise um, of predominantly people that are have been homeless or are dealing with mental health and addiction issues. And this particular concept has been criticized because it's like saying, I want to quit smoking. I'm going to move into a smoking only building where they have, you know, smoking only rooms and we'll give you free cigarettes and and think you're going to quit smoking. So there's questions about the the congregate concept uh, in and of itself. But that's number one. Number two is the urban design, putting a 13 story building, which is being built out of modular housing in a new form. Uh, right Again, this is right across the street from St. Augustine's Elementary School and just down from the uh, Delmont Park, which is prim- primarily for toddlers. So you're putting in um, a, a congregative housing in 13 stories in what is really a mixed neighborhood. Um, in terms of the built form, they could have just as easily put in, say, up to six stories and accommodated it. But it's very specific, this high-rise modular housing, and this ties back to a company that's building it called Nexi, which just happens to have former Mayor Gregor Robertson as an executive. So it's the form of development. And then finally, the fact that the, the local you know, community has been completely ignored 
uh, people have been coming out and saying, you know, we're not against social housing, we're against this height, this particular form of of housing, this particular congregative form of housing, because there's lots, there's a whole spectrum of of social or supportive housing. You know, um, there's a lot in the area of, of women and children that are escaping domestic abuse or in recovery, for example, that could have been equally as easily accommodated in in housing that was more of a ground-oriented architecture style. So there were alternatives, but none of them were even looked at because, as I know from my experience being on council, the deal was made well in advance. The the city had shopped around a list of city-owned property that they were open to developing uh, with the nonprofit housing sector. And they entered into an agreement or MOU with uh, BC Housing right off the top. And the idea was always to put in congregate housing using this particular form of high-rise modular housing, which had just been introduced by this company, Nexi, that had you know, projected itself or, or as a unicorn in the market, again, with uh, former Mayor Gregor Robertson as an executive. So the business deal was already made, and uh, I think it was pretty clear that uh, they weren't interested in listening to the community about it. So what what should be there instead? What does the community want there instead of this? Well, if you look at the property and you look at its location, you could accommodate the same um, number of occupants in in what I'm suggesting up to six stories, which is considered ground-oriented architecture, um, but it wouldn't involve this particular high-rise modular deal, which is what I'm saying the, the, the deal had already been made. So um, more ground-oriented architecture, and in terms of the the, the, the uh, supported housing that type that would be there, I'm suggesting, and the community has suggested, that it would be much more suitable to, uh, especially families, uh, women, children. Um, there is already supportive housing in the area in a smaller area for, again, women escaping domestic abuse, recovery centers and things of that nature. So again, you could accommodate the same number of people, maybe in a different composition, but still seeking um, supportive housing in a a more sensitive built form of ground-oriented architecture instead of high-rise. Okay. So what, like... Is the biggest issue the height or the like the way that the place is being built with these sort of single like single room single occupant type places? What what's the biggest concern to the community there? Well, the congregative housing um, is a problem because again, you're going to be bringing in. Uh, it contemplates SRO housing, if you know what that, that uh, single yeah, room yeah. occupancy, and so the folks that would stay there would, would be largely. Um, unhoused, which is what the term now is for homeless, and largely with mental health and addiction issues. Now, if you drive down Arbutus and look at the the area there right between just north of, of Broadway, you'll see it's just, it's like 16 meters across the street from a, an elementary school. And it's just as a location for that particular choice, again, on a spectrum of types of, of supportive housing is 
it's like putting a big middle finger up to the community by creating, by potentially bringing in the kinds of conflict that would surround it. And you only have to look at the Marguerite Ford or some of the other uh, housing that, and the impact that it's had on the immediate surrounding neighborhood. So it's a combination of things. It's not listening to the people in the neighborhood who said yes to, um, to supportive housing, but in a different form. It's um, the, the congregative housing and the type of housing. So again, you can choose looking at the land to go up 13 stories in this particular modular housing. And I do come back to that because there is a business deal that took place around that particular housing form that was a foregone conclusion versus building, um, as I said, up to six stories of what's considered ground-oriented architecture that right. is less less obstructive so, of things like shadow, yeah. um, setbacks, etc. Is is the hope to get them to t- walk this back and and you know come up with some different solutions that people are more okay with? Well, that had been the hope, and again, 94 percent of the people that uh, wrote to council, um, and there were a lot, uh, said. Basically, what I've just told you is that we're that uh, we support we are we're in support of supportive housing in the community. We've already got it, but we'd like to to, to be to scale, and not bringing in um, you know as disruptive a form. Sure, yeah. So it I- passed in it passed in public hearing. Yesterday's meeting was just with the development permit board, and the development permit board, which I used to sit on up until 2008, it's its job to adjudicate and look at the physical form. But everything that was discussed, the impact of shadowing, casting shadows on the schoolyards and the playgrounds and the, the parks across sure. the street were yeah. ignored. All those things were ignored. Yeah. So and it, so there was no appetite because the deal was already made. I, and for sure. And that that sours it, the fact that the deal was already made. And I understand that there is this like, hey, we should have supportive housing, just not supportive housing like this. But I suppose mm-hmm. the other side of the argument is like we like we need to come up with something supportive housing. And I get that the, the agreement is there and this is in place now. Do we delay a project like this uh, that could potentially improve a lot of people's lives at some cost? I understand the shadows and the sight lines and all that type of stuff. But I suppose my question is, like, are there other examples of, like you mentioned, Marguerite Ford, um, of buildings in the city and have they negatively affected playgrounds, parks, those type of um, places? Because my, my understanding is that there are lots and lots of communities like this sort of scattered throughout the city. And oftentimes we don't even know that they're there because they run well, so smooth. Point. That's the point is because you're, you're going to know this is there because it's a big 13 story sure. right in the middle of things. Um, congregative housing in and of itself is the problem. It's been demonstrated time and time again. If people are looking to, uh, to recovery or to reintegration, you want to take a more distributed approach to your, your housing. And in fact, that already exists throughout Kitsilano as an example. Sure. But this is like pulling it all and putting it in one place. And when those examples have happened, you can look at Marguerite Ford's as an example, but this is not just here. It's, it's wherever there have been examples where you've been pulling a bunch of people that all are sharing with the same problems. A lot of it's drug addiction. A lot of it's saying that we're going to put, um, you know, a place where you can do drugs right in the building. 
right, right across the street. With and then they'll say, "Oh, well, staff are going to supervise it." In my experience, and everything that I looked at, and all of the examples, and especially was when I was on council, was there were no examples where this was working as a form, okay. housing form, or congregative housing. Scott Shantz filling in for Jill Bennett. First off, shout out to uh, producer Timothy French for picking a Tom Petty song, one of my favorite artists of all time. Last Dance with Mary Jane there. Uh, You hear all the time people saying, why didn't we learn how to do a tax return in school? Why did we learn square dancing when we could have been learning like basic things like, I don't know, how to fix a clogged sink or do things that are, you know, life skill things. And uh, there's a lot, there's a lot of that stuff, like stuff that should be taught in schools that nece- that isn't. And one of the things that's gaining momentum to be added to the school curriculum is how to spot fake news on the internet, because that's where we get all of our news and our information, or at least the majority of it these days. And there's tons of stuff out there. You know, we used to be told, like, don't believe everything you see on TV. And yet, yet we all have some degree of like, hey, I saw this on the internet, so it must be true. So there is an idea behind this movement that perhaps we should be teaching kids about misinformation in schools because it's done a lot of damage and it has the potential to do a lot more damage in the future. And one of the people who's like pushing this idea is a professor from Alberta named Tim Caulfield. He's an expert on misinformation and he joins me now. Uh, Professor Caulfield, let me just start by asking you this. Like, how do you define it? What even is misinformation? Uh, Well, in fact, it's tough to define misinformation. And and I think that is that ambiguity has been weaponized by those trying to push misinformation. But I really think of something that's called, uh, I call the misinformation continuum. On one end of that continuum, you have information that is clearly wrong and that those who are pushing the misinformation, they know it's wrong. So this is really disinformation. The the intent is to do harm. Uh, And sometimes these are, are state actors, right, who are just trying to create information chaos. Um, think about uh, the big lie uh, in the United States or something like uh, the Sandy Hook lie that Alex Jones pushed. Um, these are things that are clearly wrong. Everyone knows they're wrong, and they're being pushed to, be, to fulfill a particular agenda. So the intent is there. Move along that continuum, uh, and you have individuals that, you know, I, I think that they likely know things are wrong, and you see this a lot in the anti-vax community, pushing misinformation that is not supported by the body of of evidence, uh, misinformation that has been refuted uh, uh, repeatedly with solid evidence, but it's still pushed uh, as if it's true. Uh, And often this is done, I think, to build brands, to sell products, um, and move along that continuum a little further, and let's just go to the end of it. And sometimes people pass on information that is incorrect. They don't know it's incorrect. They just want to do what's best for themselves. They may believe it. They want to do what's best for their family and community. That's misinformation too, but the intent is very different, right? And and all of us can fall for that. You've fallen for misinformation. I've fallen for misinformation. The information environment is just so chaotic, um, it's easy to have that happen. So we have to think of misinformation, I think, as a complex phenomenon. Okay, that's that's great. And it's also good to hear that we've all sort of fallen for it, because that sort of takes a little bit of the pressure off, I think. But I think, like, I think that at least the public perception, like my perception as a layperson when it comes to this, is that it's so like it's so far uh, on one end of this continuum. I think a lot of us 
find ourselves asking, how can people possibly believe some of these theories like the QAnon stuff, you know, and some of this stuff that's just so far out there. And I think we look at people who we normally would regard as really intelligent and then think, how can this person believe that? How does someone go from um, having what would normally be like a really great filter end up believing misinformation? Yeah, this is a really good point. And, you know, I, you know, I speak to the general public often about misinformation and, and you know, the, often there are individuals in the audience who will say, well, you know, who gets to define misinformation, even if you just stick with the absurd stuff, right, the stuff that is just demonstrably wrong, right? So there aren't microchips in the vaccines right um you shouldn't be drinking borox right right um you know all the all the q nonsense even if you just stick with that the number of individuals that believe it is incredible like the microchip and and the uh, vaccine depending on what survey you look at anywhere between 20 and 30 percent of people in north america are at least open to that idea and that's a hardcore conspiracy theory that has no evidence at all behind it part of what happens and it's obviously a complex phenomenon right uh, part of what is happening i think and this is happening increasingly is, is believing that absurdity becomes part of what it takes to be part of a community, right? So mm. there'll be a community of individuals, and they believe a basket of beliefs, and one of those beliefs is this absurd thing. And, of course, hardcore example of it, obviously, is QAnon. But increasingly, you're seeing misinformation sort of align with particular ideological perspectives. We're seeing that happen with the anti-vax community in, in, uh, in the United States, but starting to happen here in Canada, too. So, yeah, uh, the ideology, the personal branding part of the equation uh, is is really significant. Okay, and that makes perfect sense. So now let's talk about this. How how do we combat this? Uh, look, this is, you know, one of the challenges of our time, right? It's incredibly yeah. damaging. Um, we need to come at it from every direction. This isn't going to be, there's going to be one simple tool that fix this. You know, obviously it's, it's going to require a multi-pronged approach. So what do we need to do? We need to pre-bunk. So what does that mean? Highlight the kinds of strategies that are used to push misinformation. We need to debunk, right? So we need to use good, creative, I think, upbeat content to correct misinformation online, in, in popular culture. Uh, yes, we do need to uh, do some degree of regulation. And I actually think, and I'm a big proponent of freedom of expression, I think that things like deplatforming should be instruments of last resort and only when um, the policies are transparent and agreed upon. Mm. Um, and, and we need to use nudges. We need to get people to pause and think about accuracy before they share. But Perhaps this is a generational problem. One of the most important things we need to do is teach critical thinking and media literacy skills. Right. And do you think that that is something that um, we just did, like we just never did? We kind of disregarded to do it because we didn't think that we would have to? Or is that something that has, like, it's never been there in schools? Like, how do we bring that into schools? If that's, like, that's what you're sort of thinking about, right? It's like teach it as part of like a, like a public school pro program, right? Uh, absolutely. And, and look, there, there are wonderful programs across Canada and North America, and I know there's many teachers who are passionate. I've had the opportunity to talk to them, passionate about critical thinking skills, but I, I really do think it needs to become a paramount consideration in schools. And, and, and the really good thing about teaching critical thinking is it's content neutral, right? It, we're not going, we don't have to go down that sort of politically fraught road of, of saying, okay, this is right, this is wrong. 
On the contrary, what we're doing is we're giving Canadian citizens the tools, the critical thinking uh, skills necessary, right, to, to make that determination on their own, right, which I think everyone would agree, uh, hopefully <laughs> that's something we can all agree on, is a good idea, right? So I think we should start teaching critical thinking skills as early as kindergarten in, in countries like Finland. They actually do that. Uh, and it has to be taught throughout the education process, right? So, you know, all through elementary school, junior high, high school, university, and I think there should be classes that are available for adults too. It's just so fundamental given how chaotic our, chaotic our information environment is and how important fighting, fighting misinformation is right now, not just to our health, but to our democracies. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love to hear you say that because I think so many times when, you know, you're sitting around having a drink with your buddies, you know, kind of trying to quote unquote, solve the world's problems, you know, from an armchair. Uh, it, I often find myself coming back to this idea of, yeah, education. We just need to teach uh, this. This stuff needs to be like core. Um, it's important. I, 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 I agree with you. And, and, uh, I'd love to see that sort of thing happen. So maybe I'll ask you this and, you know, I'll, I'll let you go for the morning, but can you, is there any, like, can you give me something positive, you know, cause you mentioned it's like in the States and, you know, especially now we look at Canada um, and the, it's growing here. You can see it growing. We had the trucker convoy. There has been other instances of, of similar things uh, across the country. Um, is, is this changing? Are you now that it's kind of, it's been around for a couple of years or had probably a lot longer than that, but has recently like been very um, prolific in the last number of years. Are you seeing any positive changes? Are you seeing any people sort of come out of these sort of uh, belief systems and maybe also speak to that of how, how uh, lots of people know and have loved ones who believe these crazy things, how you combat that? Yeah. I mean, I'm ever the optimist, Scott, <laughs> Excuse me. I'm ever the optimist, Scott. You know, I like I like to to think that there are are way, ways forward. Uh, so the good news is the good news is you know we have more evidence on on what we can do to fight misinformation, right? We have a growing body of evidence about uh, empirically proven strategies, such as you know such as pre-bunking, such as you know using appropriate content uh, to debunk, you know such as using things like accuracy nudges to remind people just to pause before they they um, and think about accuracy before they read content and share content. You know, there, there's evidence that that stuff works, and and more and more researchers, more and more science communicators are are, are focusing on it. So that's the optimism side of the equation. Okay. The pessimism side of the equation is this is is increasingly becoming about ideology, right? And mm, and yeah. once uh, misinformation becomes about a person's ideology, it becomes more difficult to change change their minds, right? Because it, it becomes their personal brand. It becomes who they are. Uh, and, and all those cognitive biases, like confirmation bias, you know, they, that kicks in. So, uh, you know, if you have a loved one, a family member who's fallen down that rabbit hole, you know, be patient. You know, the, keeping a positive relationship is so important because you want to have that, that connection and give them a path to credible information. And, and of course, you have to be patient. No one to walk away. When that temperature starts to rise, you know, it, yeah. might be, it might be good to walk away. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.